Good to see it. I'm perfect. You, you do look perfect. <laughs> I see a lot of muscle on you. I said that to somebody. Somebody's like, how are you? I went perfect. They're like, that is the most aggressive answer. And I was like, well, I guess it is. I, I mean it more just as a joke. Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs, benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theatre masters, founders and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Well, I'm really happy to meet you in person. and. Yeah. You know, I realized that um, when I started in improv uh, mm-hmm. several years ago, I went out uh, when you could still fly airplanes. Um, right. I went out. I went out to Chicago to do an intensive with Jimmy Corain. Oh yeah, he's the one that told me to buy this oh, book. Oh, he's so nice. I love Jimmy. I love he's such Jimmy. a sweetheart of a guy. Yeah, uh, I love him. I'm I'm happy to be friends with him. I really love talking about uh, improv teaching with him because he's he's really good at it. Like he's just really got a knack for creating a good environment for people to learn stuff in. I'm jealous of it. I hate him. No, I'm, I, 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 I admire him. <laughs> and he's always been like really supportive of me and lots of people. Yeah, he's terrific. And he used to come to Marco Island because his wife's family was down here in Florida. Oh, okay. Okay. So we got even more time for classes and oh, some nice. classes. Yeah. He's a terrific yeah. guy. Also, he's an older bald guy with glasses. So I'm, really inclined to have a to really like him well he and i look more and more alike as we get older this is a true story this is true jimmy and i look so much alike that on his imdb page because he's been in a couple movies and tv shows the photo that is on his page is me it is not him (laughs) and um i'd say every like once a month somebody emails me and says, Hey, your photos on Jimmy Corain's IMDb page. And I'm like, I literally don't know how that happened. Don't know what to do about it. I've emailed Jimmy, no response. I, and it's not that big a deal. I don't mind, but it's just, <laughs> it's a photo of Will Hines on the Jimmy Corain page. That's great. Yeah. So, I was telling Landon when I was preparing for the interview, I've been listening to hours and hours and your music of, of interviews and oh gosh, and, and you are a uh, recognized uh, famous musician, and that's very important. Buy your wonderful album. Yeah, super famous. It's very metaphorical and a lot of <laughs> allegory in it. I found, um, but uh, I kept thinking about that <laughs> that time Chris Farley was interviewing Paul McCartney. And oh yeah, yeah, I love like, that. Yeah. Like, remember, so Will, like, remember when you were with the UCB, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah remember yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, that is one of the all-time great sketches. I love that one. I do, too. It's so fantastic. So I have a, a lot of things I want to bring up about, about you and questions I want to ask. I've been starting to read Pirates, Robot, and Ninja. Oh, and, thank you. Um, yeah, it's a great book. And I kind of identified with the robot, not the ninja. Could you mm-hmm. explain to those people who, for some reason, haven't bought the book yet mm-hmm. about what is a pirate robot and ninja? Sure, yeah. 
This is a, a metaphor that my friend Billy Merritt came up with. Billy Merritt is a teacher and performer. He's a Florida boy. Um, and um, he's used it for years. And it's um, pirate is the type of improviser who's like the actor, the impulsive, brave act first, think later. And they are fun, but they get themselves into sort of trouble because they don't know the rules, but they, they add a lot of energy and confidence. And the robots like carefully go to classes and learn all the rules and try to do it right. And they help in that way. That's good. But they sometimes have trouble uh, being impulsive and following their instincts and feeling things. <laughs> and a ninja is, is the master, is the one who can switch modes as needed. The ninja is the final form. And Billy, Billy came up with this metaphor, I think, as sort of a fun way to tell students, hey, you're not going to be good at everything right away. You'll be good at some stuff and bad at other stuff, and that's totally all right. And Don't focus on the negative only. Like Focus on what you're good at and be proud of that, even while you're trying to get better at other stuff. So it's meant to just be kind of a fun way to say, hey, we're not all, we're not all good at everything, especially not right away. Um, and you know, the duality of pirate versus robot is yeah, it's just kind of fun. I think, I think that's, that's I, the idea. I totally agree. I think it's a lot of fun. You yeah. mentioned the rules. Um, when you were starting out, your, your first uh, troop was UCB. The first place you studied was UCB. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And you were a, uh, you were a computer programmer. Is that the kind of work? Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was a computer programmer in my twenties. Um, and I kind of missed uh, creative people and funny people because I had a lot of sort of like funny creative friends in high school and college. And now I was working with all these computer programmers who actually were like totally nice people, but just sort of, you know, quiet, rigid nerds. And I started doing improv when I was 29 just to be around creative people again. Uh, and it was at UCB. This was in 1999. And it was quite a small theater at that time in New York. Um, but full of ambition and really talented people. And um, yeah, I just kind of fell into it. I, I just sort of really jibed with the people there and made a lot of friends. And I was like, I think I'll just stay here the rest of my life. And that worked out for 20 years. Not so bad. Not pretty, pretty good run. So when did you actually leave? Well, I, did, uh, I should say, I guess I'm still there. Uh, UCB New York, which is what I initially joined, closed this march so you know i'm thinking in the story the organization that i joined kind of shut down so i'm still part of ucb in la but as we are doing this interview during the covid pandemic it's currently sort of dormant um but i expect to be involved once it once it you know comes back fully okay good yeah good. and so yeah. we started classes did they talk about the rules yeah, sure. I mean, like, um, um, yes, there were fewer of them then, but they still had them. The rules were more like, I mean, these rules that I'm about to say are still, they still exist, but it was like, you know, don't do teaching scenes, don't do transaction scenes, don't ask questions, um, you know, don't talk about people who are not in the scene, um, don't deny uh, those, those are the kind of rules. And, and at UCB, there was also find the game and, and heighten it, which that one was sort of unique to UCB at that time. Maybe, maybe 
still is more of a UCB thing than other places. Um, yeah, and it was, yeah. So, yeah, those rules were, they abounded. Yeah, I think it was McNapier's book where he said, forget about the rules. And mm-hmm. that was very liberating to me. Um, yeah, I had that same experience. I read Mick's book when it came out and I loved it, still love it. Um, and he said, forget about the rules. But the thing that really stuck with me was he pointed out that all the rules were phrased in the negative, like right. telling you what not to do. And they didn't tell you what you should do. And I was like, oh, you know, he's right. Like, that's not really a good teaching strategy to just say, don't do transaction scenes, even though that's like a well-meant piece of advice. Like, all right, well, well what do I do? <laughs> what do you, what am I allowed to do? Um, I thought like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a good observation. And he sort of, you know, I, now I'm going to misquote him, but I, you know, I think he was like, make a choice, anything and do it. Like, just know what your deal is and your deal could be almost anything. Um, you know, the brain doesn't recognize the word no. So like when you tell somebody don't do that, they're going to want to do it. Mm. Um, right, right. Little brain science there. I am a big fan of improv history and I got to meet mm. Michael, uh, Michael Golding and I became friends who, you know, worked with David Shepard till David passed away. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just uh, I, I just think it's so interesting. And I, I'm going to misquote you now, but I think you said something like, you know, it kind of started in the 30s, but then it really didn't start really going until the 90s. Do you mm. remember saying something like that? Yes. Yes. I've um, I don't remember. I also don't remember how I put it exactly. But like, good. <laughs> um, I just sort of, you know, I think like improv history tends to focus on, you know, early days of second city and before like university of chicago late 50s early 60s elaine may um paul sills era which of course is like super important whatever but i'm like for what's relevant to the modern era i think 90s chicago is the genesis of current improv like basically the rise of io and the annoyance is like the genesis of like what people do today for improv like the ucb was born out of that I think you can tie UCB into 90s Chicago pretty accurately. And like the rise of like theaters that have teams and like they make their money off classes and not shows and um, auditions and just sort of young, uh, hungry people doing improv as, as opposed to people like me um, is like 90s Chicago, I think. Right. Well, that's the Dell Close time, right? I mean, Dell was there. Dell also, yes. Yeah. I mean, Dell predates it, right? Like, Dell was involved from the late 50s until he died in 99. So there's different eras of Dell's influence. Like, Dell was also the big teacher for the original SNL guys, like Belushi and stuff, and Bill Murray. So his influence goes back further. But yeah, he was, you know, IO is Sharna and Dell. So. Um, the rise of IO is the rise of Dell. I think Dell goes from eccentric director to like guru right. in the nineties. Th- thanks to the people who worked with him in the nineties, who sort of like elevated his status. That's, that's the impression I get. I mean, I wasn't there. I'm getting this from like working backwards from talking to my UCB teachers who they came up in nineties, Chicago. So I'm sort of guessing, but. So who are your teachers? Let's see. Um, Kevin Mullaney was my first teacher. 
and then Michael Delaney and Armando Diaz were next. Mm. Um, and then I took uh, Ian Roberts and Matt Besser. Mm -hmm. uh, I had workshops with a uh, Amy Poehler and Matt Walsh, but yeah. it was pretty brief. So I, I, whereas Ian Roberts, I took like five classes with and Besser, I took two. Um, those were my, oh, and Ali Farinakian was an early teacher of mine. Um, those were my big improv teachers. Then I would take workshops with like whoever floated through New York, you know, like right. Bob Dassey and uh, Susan Messing and just whoever like came. Oh, I love Susan Messing. I just did a Zoom intensive with her. Yeah, she's um, really yeah. fun. Oh, She's really fun and smart and she's a good teacher. And I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that's the no, that's coming out. Um, so I was at DCM 14. Were you at that? Yeah. So that's where I saw you. Okay. Yes. That makes sense. Yes. Because I knew I had seen you someplace. <laughs> somewhere. When you say 14, do you mean um, in the, this, you're probably not going to know this because I'm the kind of, well, maybe you are if you're a robot type. DCM 14 is in 2013, or do you mean the one that was in 2014? Because sometimes 2000, people... 2013, because okay, I was yeah. pretty new. And so I got to watch, was it an ASCAT performance at the end? Uh, yeah, I was yeah. in that one, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was great. Uh, oh, thank you. And were you, somebody did a two-person scene for a while that was fantastic. I don't know who that was, though. I can't remember. Um, what do you mean, like a show or like in ASCAT or something? Or Yeah, part of ASCAT, I think. It was, uh, it was at the Pratt, I think. But Well, um, yeah, the Pratt, uh, the way DCM worked at that time was the Pratt was one of the venues and they had um, a number of shows there and ASCAT was the final show of the festival. ASCAT wouldn't have had two prom. That's always like a big group okay. doing stuff. Yeah, so yeah. that would have been a different show, maybe also at the Pratt. I think it might be the guy that was on maybe 30 Rock. Oh, Scott Atsit. Yeah, Scott. that makes sense. Yeah, he probably did Atsit and You, where he would like just grab somebody from the audience. And uh, th that was a common show he would do. That's, pro that's probably what that was. Now, um, there's so many things I want to ask you. Uh, I've heard you kind of compare the difference, uh, you know, bigger theaters, you know, like UCB, Second City, mm -hmm. I.O., mm -hmm. um, yeah. and Groundlings. Right. And um, maybe that, that's pretty audacious of me. I've only studied at UCB, but there I am making proclamations about all the places. Yeah, I love that about me. Just totally arrogant. That's my I, jam. I love it too. I love it. I love being arrogant, you know? Yeah, it's so, a blast. So just in a very brief method, uh, describe the differences in the school, please. Okay. This is mostly me working backwards from watching people who have studied at the places. Cause I've only studied at UCB and you know, the big qualification is all of the best people end up playing the same way, really, whatever path they use to get there, as far as I can tell. But if you're going to make, you know, generalizations, UCB is like fast and funny, patterns early and often, and the acting kind of suffers. It's like impatiently getting to the funny part and repeat it right away, which can be really fun and can be sort of shallow. That's UCB, you know? Um, you know, you're weird. You're weird for trying to eat this boat. No, I'm not. I eat this boat because I'm happy and I'll eat two boats. Oh no, that's my boat. Well, now I'm having a third. That's a UCB scene. 
<laughs> the boat scene, ladies and gentlemen. The boat scene, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm making fun of it, but also um, UCB improv is really fun. Like, they get to the funny right away. For a non-improv audience, I put my money on UCB improv to please them first before a lot of other theaters. And I think that's the reason why the UCB became successful was they put a premium on let's let's use improv as a tool to make funny scenes i mean my teachers would be appalled at the scene i just described but nonetheless again if you're comparing theaters that's how ucb would look um uh, second city is like um you know deep investment in like character and location and patience uh and taking it real slow and maybe, and then um, maybe forgetting to be funny, and um, and also making vaguely political statements at all times. That's what I think of as Second City. You know, like so Second City C would be like, "Thanks for coming into this boat with me, Dad." Uh, yes, yeah, son, you mean a lot to me. Then like two minutes of silence and quiet object work of putting bait on a hook. And then one of them says like, "What about Nixon?" And the, the son goes, "I hate him." That's a scene. That's Second City. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and io um would be similar to second city but um like with weird sound and movement edits taking you from scene to scene you know like a piano player uh eight people and they would they so here's the second the io scene is like it's also very committed to character and location they'll hit, they'll find a pattern once in a while and they'll do weird sound and movement edits. So it'll be like, thanks for getting in this boat, Dad. Yes, yeah, son. 30 seconds of putting bait on a hook. And then somebody steps off in the back line. We cut away from this boat to a fisherman's shop in a nearby town. Woo! The piano goes. And then uh, somebody comes out to be the, the shopkeeper and is like, what brings you here, partner? All right. So that's I.O. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to make enemies with every single improv camp with this. And then uh, let's see. Oh, Groundlings. So Groundlings is like, you know, it's character based and it's like wigs and um, catchphrases. I mean, they, they do do improv, but it's, I think they would admit they're more sketch and character oriented than improv. But a Groundlings show is like, hi, my name's Dr. Guns. We're going to get in my boat. And somebody else comes on and says, I don't want to get in your boat. I'm all about the boat. All about the boat. <laughs> That's Groundlings. Let's see. Who else can I piss off? Um, well, that might be all I know. I don't know. What do you think? Am I right? <laughs> hey, Landon, did he miss anybody? I don't think so. I think uh, I think you've just uh, completely scorched the earth there, Will. So nice job. <laughs> So uh, something really important, and w what brought my husband and I together is I play piano, he oh. plays guitar, nice. and um, we met because we both had this interest in the Beatles, and we met in a 12-step oh. program, and he made a quote, and then I made a quote, and it was, but I know you have a, a Beatles game that you play, and yeah. it's a podcast, it's really great. I have a podcast, yeah, it's called Screw It, we're just going to talk about the Beatles. Right. Uh, it's intermittent. It's not like a podcast that comes out every week. Just friends of mine and I get together sort of when we feel like it. And we do an episode about some Beatles topic. Yeah, it's, it's really fun to do. Um, I mean, the Beatles is like the safest group to say that you like because there's always somebody who likes the Beatles around. Um, I occasionally find somebody who hates the Beatles, but I always find that 
they're doing it to make a point or to be contrary. And, you know, everybody either loves the Beatles or doesn't care. <laughs> Those are the two opinions. Yeah, it's, well, it's, really, it's really fun talking about the Beatles. It is so much fun. I'd like to play it now. And I was going to say George Harrison is one of my favorite because he was spiritual and Mm -hmm. he was such a grounded kind of guy and he was involved with Monty Python and a cool, cool guy. We just, my husband, we were in mourning for about three months and played nothing but George Harrison music when he died. I know. I know. It, It caught me by surprise. I didn't really realize he was sick when it happened. So anyway, wow. so wow. Uh, the Beatles game is a lot, a lot of fun. So now, I don't, I don't know if I think of it as a game. Like I have a podcast, and we do, maybe we did a game once on one episode. What, what are you thinking of? Oh, the, you did a game where um, if you could only be a Beatle, a specific Beatle during one era, who would mm. you be? Mm-hmm. I have an answer. Do you have an answer? Uh, well, yeah, I was really pondering it for a long time myself, but um, I, I think it, I got to say, I, I think it would be George and it would be when he was with the Maharishi. Um, mm. I like robes. I like things that don't show my body. Uh, <laughs> how about you? John Lennon uh, during their uh, Hamburg era when they ah. were just like young, you know, covering 50s rock and roll songs on amphetamines all night playing music for like eight hour sets. That's what I'd want to be. And all that. leather, leather jackets and the yeah, boots. Yeah. And, yeah. Rock and, rock and, the rocker Beatles, the rock and roll Beatles. Yeah. So you're a Connecticut right. Yankee, um, born in, raised in Connecticut, went to Yukon and mm-hmm. journalism was your yeah. major. Cool. And, and, and now you're back in Connecticut. Can I ask what, I don't want stalkers to know your address, but just what part of Connecticut central Connecticut, Connecticut farmland, Connecticut. Um, my youngest brother's getting married, uh, sort of a family only ceremony. So I've come back to quarantine so that I can go to the ceremony and not terrify my 77 year old father. And so I'm in the middle of Connecticut, kind of just uh, waiting for two weeks for the ceremony this Saturday. So um, my, I teach a lot of, I teach as well, and I teach a lot of mindfulness and I've studied mindfulness for a long time. I had a great teacher from Massachusetts, Jack Cornfield was my I, teacher. I love Jack. I have uh, one of his books and uh, I love his podcasts. Yeah. He's such a, his voice like soothes me instantly. I turn into like a kitten when I'm listening to that. It's really great. Uh, yeah. I spent a whole week with him once. He was here in Naples. Um, oh my gosh. You know, 30 years ago. Uh, so, so great. I'm so lucky, but you're pretty mindful yourself. And I think the concept of being present is a mindful yeah. activity as well. Can you tell some of our folks out there about being present and what it means? Oh yeah. Well, I, I say this in relation to improv. Um, and I, you know, I just find that people, when they begin studying improv, they, they quite understandably begin a scene and they're very anxious to wonder like what's going to happen and, what is it going to be about? And when is it going to be funny? And they think about the end a lot. And they think about these scenes, sort of like stories that are going to have a big ending. And I'm the be present advice is like, oh, that, that doesn't work in improv. You have to sort of not worry about the ending or the future at all. And instead sort of get good at reacting to the present moment and characterizing the present moment and reporting on what you feel and that if you know with a little practice that can become interesting 
And that's the better mindset for an improv scene. Just like the present moment is all that matters. And if you're just good at saying what you're feeling currently, that will be, and, and you allow it to change as you go, uh, depending on what the other people are doing, then that's interesting. And so, yeah, it, it, but it, it sort of takes practice because we're very naturally solution oriented. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the, and then it, it sort of corresponds to kind of a nice emotional advice and good philosophical stuff also. But I, I really only say it in the pragmatic benefit for doing an improv scene, be present. Gotcha. Gotcha. What about fight? Well, these are chapters from your book and besides everybody needs to go out and buy how to be the greatest improviser on earth. Although now I've read it and I'm not the greatest improviser on earth. So no, do I get my money be. back? You must be. You finished the book. I think you are. <laughs> I, I just, you know, you don't get your money back. Cause I say that you are the greatest improviser on earth. What do you think of that? That's my refund policy. No, mo- no money, but I tell people that the greatest improviser on earth. You think that's a good policy? <laughs> um, yeah. Fight well is like, um, you know, a, a very common, early piece of advice to improvisers is don't fight because fights can slow up a scene so much. And although I understand where that advice is coming from, I think it's wrong because fighting is a huge part of a good improv scene and all seasoned improvisers, they have disagreements in their improv scenes and their different points of view are quite funny and necessary. So rather than don't fight, I I think the advice is fight well and if I had to really oversimplify it, the key to fighting well is every accusation is true. Everything everybody accuses each other of in an improv scene, just act like they're right. Everything's true. And that makes the fights work. You just have to yes and unflattering accusations, you know? In an improv scene, somebody tells you you're a jerk, then your response should be to be a jerk. Yeah, I think that point of view is so important. Do you know Dave Rosowski? I do, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've done some classes with him online before the pandemic and some live ones. I just love him. But he he has a real focus on point of view and then mm. when the beat changes. And I think it's really important to hold on to that and not just change because somebody says something to maintain that. Um, right, right. Yeah. Uh, you want to say yes to the accusations, but you can also say yes to your own point of view. It's There's almost always a way to say yes to everything. Right. And um, that's what's uh, fun. And I'm sorry I misquoted it. It's fight well, okay? And be authentic. Oh, yeah. Uh, Be authentic is, um, uh, you know, it's funny. You write a book and you like parts of it and you don't like parts of it. I I feel like I didn't express myself well in this chapter, but I will tell you, Margo, what I was going for. And it basically just means, like, act naturally, like act like a real human being, and as opposed to acting in a very stylized, uh, way like a lot of people when they do improv they put on an improv voice you know where they're sort of like welcome to my store how are you stranger uh, and I'm like don't do that uh, be off that, be yourself like just may- maybe later we'll do a genre scene and we'll have fun with stylized scenes but your default attitude should be to like be calm and be yourself and don't put on a fake improv voice that is armor that is hiding you from being present. Uh, that's what I meant to get into there. Okay, great. I, yeah. I, I get that. I love that. Um, <laughs> top of the scene. Oh, yeah. Um, so in terms of teaching improv and, 
and learning it just um a lot of uh, a lot of how a class can help you is making the beginning of your scene well and a lot of the things you do at the very beginning of the scene will either help you or hurt you later and um this is especially true at UCB where there is a big emphasis on finding something unusual. Um, it really hurts you if you rush the top of the scene. Okay, the short version is the top of the scene, it really helps if you go slow and just try to be truthful and honest and listen to each other and say, yes, there's huge dividends later in the scene. So it's like the top of the scene chapter of my book is basically just like make sure you're giving each other all the time you need. Make sure you're saying yes to everything at the top. Um, make make a choice and then f everybody fully unpack it before you make another choice. That, that's the general advice. Go, go slow and say yes is extra crucial at the top. I, I spent about a year working with some kids, I call them kids because of my age, that were doing, just working straightly from the UCB manual. And yeah. so I remember that game where uh, you come in, Mr. Jones come in, and mm -hmm. um, I have, you know, a couple of things for me today. It's a, it's a TV producer say, mm -hmm. I want you to get the scripts. I want, it, I want you to check on the actor's time schedule. Mm -hmm. And I'd like you to bring in a cow at lunchtime, something right, like right, that. Right. And right. so would that kind of be the same in the, so the top of the scene, but you're being totally straight. You're not having any yeah. reaction because it uh, goes, um, okay. Uh, I love that you brought up this exercise, but this is from my book and not the UCB manual. This is an exercise called you wanted to see me. And, um, yeah, it's supposed to teach. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh my God. Oh, that's, Oh no. I don't mind. I, I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> uh, I just don't want, I, I'm not sure the UCB would like this exercise, so I don't want them to be blamed for something that I like. Um, but it's, um, <laughs> yeah, you give three normal requests and then one weird one. And it like, it's just sort of teaching the value of an unusual thing in a scene, but you have to lay out the normal base reality first before you can be unusual. So yeah, you do three normal requests and that paints the context so we know what's happening and then you lay out a weird one that is a uh, funny and needs to be unpacked. And uh, yeah, I think it's a good, good exercise. I, I just love it. Um, so right now you've got the greatest improv school yeah. in the world. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? And are you doing levels at your school? How does it work? Yeah. Um, I've started an online school. It's called the world's greatest improv school. Uh, it's kind of, uh, I started it in March when everything locked down and I had no way to make money. I started doing classes online cause I was desperate. Um, and then I, uh, to my surprise, enjoyed it. Um, and I've kept on doing it and I've decided, oh yeah, maybe I'll keep this going and I'm going to bring other teachers on and sort of try to do an online school. We'll, you know, we'll sort of see if it lasts or, or what happens. Um, and I, I've always been more interested in the school rather than the theater part of the improv organizations I've been in. So that's why I call it a school and not a theater. I'm not really that worried about performances. I just focus in on the classes. Um, uh, although we do have class shows online. 
And uh, we do have levels, although I just thought of them a month ago. So I, I reserve the right to change this if I think they're stupid later. But it's uh, level one is um, unusual thing. Level two is uh, monocene and point of view. Level three is herald. And level four is uh, open form, montage. And you're teaching there as well. You're one of the teachers. I'm teaching like 90% of it right now. I'm, I'm bringing in other people to offload it. But uh, I mean, it's also small. I mean, there's like... Now there's like eight classes a week. I guess that's that's something. That's terrific. I wanted to sign up, but I didn't see your name there. So I'll wait till you're yeah. starting another series, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every two months, there's a batch that go up. So, you know, one thing that for me, the pandemic, I mean, I'm still working. Luckily, I do telehealth. So I still have, oh, a, yeah. I still have my day job, which that's is good. Nice. Uh, yeah. But I have been taking so many classes and workshops, especially with our mutual friend, Jay Suko. I've been doing a lot of work with Jay. Yeah, yeah, I love Jay. And um, Dave Rosowski, I mentioned, and other folks. And yeah. I, I just started with Laura Hall, who I adore. And yeah. um, because I, I love to sing. Hmm. I, I love to also, even though I'm not great at it, but that never stopped me from doing anything. Um. <laughs> Is, I don't know Laura Hall. She, is that a musical improv teacher? She was the musical director on Whose Line? Oh, good heavens. That's, that's some serious credentials. It, it certainly is. But she's a little, and Rick Hall, who's her very funny husband. But, um, you know, during the pandemic, there's more accessibility to really great people like Laura and you. Yeah. Um, because we're in lockdown or virtual lockdown or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I've been taking up to maybe six hours a week of classes. And oh, wow. um, good for you. Yeah, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. So I really feel like it's it's really helping me a lot. And you know, your information helps a lot. And uh, oh, that's nice to, to say. Know, Thank yeah, you, I heard you were a nice person. I was. <laughs> <laughs> hey, can I ask you what what is your uh, improv story? Um, well, I had a brain aneurysm, and uh, they did surgery on it. And that was like around 2010. And while I was recovering, a friend said, I think you should, because I had to stay home for a whole month, but I, I got most everything back, I think. I think, I think. Um, anyway, <laughs> so a friend suggested I try this local acting and I had been a speaker for many years talking about the healing power of human play and was trained in something called new games back in the 70s. Mm. So anyway, so I took my first improv class. I was immediately addicted. The teacher was dynamic and charismatic. He had been a student of Dell's and was in comedy sports and stuff. And I couldn't get enough. I mm. could not get enough. And so within a year I was teaching, I was performing um, in this local group and I performed with them until it wasn't fun anymore. And um, I started when I started teaching, I was teaching uh, with a theater, okay? But then I started teaching on my own, and my dad had Parkinson's disease. I'm very involved in that. Is this TMI yet? No, I love it. Okay. Um, so I, about four years ago, I started a group for people with Parkinson's and their care partners. But it also included people with MS, um, mm. ALS, different things. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I have some of the original members still with me. Now, we're all oh. on Zoom today. We actually did a performance once. Um, we yeah. got covered, we got covered by a local NPR station, but I'm really pissed about it because they just focused on the Second City yeah. stuff and right. this neurologist, very very nice man, but they didn't give us any. I don't. They didn't say our name. They didn't say uh, they were our troop. It's like, ugh. Anyway, yeah. But it was publicity on some level. Yeah. So then, so then I started teaching. Um, 
individual classes. I hooked, like I said, I hooked up with a local theater. I developed improv for wellness with the number four and teaching improv for people, mostly kids on the spectrum. Oh, that's um, great. Teaching improv for anxiety. And who doesn't have anxiety today? Or I've before? never had it, but I've, I've heard it's a problem. <laughs> You're a liar. No, really? <laughs> You're perfect. You're perfect. <laughs> I'm perfect, yeah. <laughs> and so... Um, never had any problems. Improv for wellness expanded into other areas. And so I've, doing- always, I've always thought that uh, improv for people on the spectrum would be like really a good fit. I don't, I don't know. Do you absolutely. find that to be true? Yeah. Because it like structures the interaction and it gives you ways to measure um, uh, how well you're yes ending or not. I mean, not a hundred percent, but like it's, you can teach improv sort of in, as sort of like rules for conversation. And I would think that, um, from my very limited uh, research into it, that, that that would be a good fit for people on the spectrum. Absolutely. And my colleague is a speech and language pathologist that's mostly worked in that field for 20 years with people on the spectrum. Yeah. So we can do little surveys and evaluations. Yeah. And, but there's some terrific people out there, like a woman named Lucy Alano, who was with The Hideout for a while. Okay. Did you know Jimmy Fallon gave that Hideout $15,000 last night? Jimmy Fallon? Yep, he did it. I was actually watching his show. So I think you need to contact him for some more seed money. <laughs> yeah, I can. I'll, I'll use, I mean, I have no expenses right now, but I don't mind somebody handing me 15 grand. I'll exactly. tell him he's the world's greatest improviser. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, so um, I'm teaching classes now. Um, I teach improv for therapists because we're a unique bunch and they need to understand improv to be better therapists, I think. Um, to really listen, communicate, and learn to play games. And I'm also in a program with a gentleman from Connecticut who was with UConn for many, many years, mm. Neil Weiner, who uh, wrote Rehearsals for Growth. So I'm a training program where um, we're learning to use specific improv techniques as therapy. So um, I actually get to Connecticut once in a while. Um, UConn's my alma mater. That's where I went to college. I know. And studied journalism. Did you ever? Were you write too? You've written. Uh, yes, yes. I was a journalist for like four years for the world's smallest newspapers, uh, and then I sort of <laughs> gave it up. Um, but I, you know, I, I love newspapers and print media and stuff. You know, I'm a big fan. Yeah, me too. I like to read. Reading is good. It is good. So I, I've, I've, I've. It's a hot take. It, yeah. So it's very, very good. I do want to plug again, Wayne and Bro- Wayne and Rodney. Oh yeah, that's my band. Yeah. Um, my friend, um, uh, my friend who I do the Beatles podcast with, his name is Joel Spence. We were, I don't know. I started teaching myself guitar, and I was writing songs as I was learning them. And he's a really accomplished musician. And I sort of went over to him, and I was like, "Would you help me record these? I don't know, just for as as a benign midlife crisis." And he was like, let's just be in a band. And so we just kind of formed a band and it's just sort of like two dudes in their late forties like music. And we just, we just make albums. And so we released an album. It's really fun. And we're going to keep releasing them. And um, I don't know. There's certainly more fun for us. It's not like anybody needs another band in the world, but um, uh, it's really fun to do it. It's just really, it's really a joy. Well, it's great. And the different styles of music you use on what I've listened to, it's, it's terrific. I mean, I, I really appreciate you listening to it, even for 10 seconds. I, I really thank you. It was longer than 10 seconds, but I like the way the lyrics appear with it as well. 
Because oh, yeah. it's hard to hear all the words. So there's so one of the songs I really liked is Do You Like My Shitty Body? And, <laughs> and, um, Lonely for the Man and I Thought I'd Be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's almost like Fire Sign Theater or something. Um, oh, yeah, there is a little yeah. bit of that. I mean, I wasn't thinking that, but I can I can hear that similarity. Yeah, tune it up. Uh, it's great. I heard you're a fan of the diatonic scale, and I don't meet and I'm, I play piano, so I don't meet many people that say I really like the diatonic scale. <laughs> yeah, that's it's not a great conversation starter, but uh, it is something that I, I like. Yeah, um, this the major scale and the diatonic chords. Uh, it just was amazing to me how how many songs are you are just formed around that. I don't know. I like learning how things work. Yeah. And learning sort of like the most common chord structures that are in songs. This is kind of fun to learn. It's wonderful. And that's the thing about the Beatles coming back to the Beatles is the incredible chord changes in a lot of their songs. Oh yeah. They're, I mean, that's the best songwriting school anybody could go to is just learn how to play every Beatles song. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. My but, husband's pretty much there. He's, you know, you name it, he plays it. So that kept us yeah. together. And Neil Young, we like Neil Young too. Um, I mean, he's also good. <laughs> very good. So this has been really, really fun for me. And uh, now when uh, when the wedding's over, are mm -hmm. you going to back to California or where are you going to live? I'm spending a week in New Jersey to hang out with my nephew who's four years old because uh, I'll have gone through the quarantine and stuff. So me and another brother of mine and his kid will hang out for a week and then, um, yeah, then I'll head on back to California. I'll be back at the end of October. All right, that's great. I'm from New Jersey. Oh yeah? You yeah, 18 miles from the tunnel. No, I miss Manhattan. I lived there for 10 years. Okay, I yeah. miss Manhattan. Yeah. If I ever won the lottery, that's where I'd like to live. Um, it's a great place. I love it too. Yeah. LA it's, could be okay, but some uh, people say, I love, I, I love LA. That has been said, yes, uh, in song and in other contexts. Um, I love California because it's, I don't know, it's its a paradise um, if you just ignore the business. And, um, and Manhattan is special too. Manhattan's not a fun place to be poor. It's a little right. bit easier to be uh, running low on funds in California. Manhattan is really unforgiving for people who don't have um, sources of income. Um, but yes, if I won the lottery, I would set up in Manhattan too. Yeah, and a place in and place in California as well. Maybe in uh, yeah, let's Santa go nuts. Uh, Venice let's, Beach. I don't know. But a place I, in London too. Let's let's really let's, yeah, let's set really, up everywhere. Yeah, yeah, I love London. Yeah. I took a job in London once, but um, I couldn't climb all the stairs and and the, and the um, tenements, so that was out for me. Yeah. So I do okay. a piece of Margot trivia that you may find interesting. Since I'm ready. Okay. The bar, the strip club <laughs> that the UCB was built in originally was yes. Billy's, Billy's Bar, Billy's Strip Club. Okay, I didn't know that. And in the 70s, hard to believe, I danced there. Really? I, I was telling Landon the story. I was a little bit impaired. And uh, yeah. so uh, I was with a boyfriend, and he was really impaired. And he said, you could do better than them. I, I'm like 22 or 23 at the time, right? Yeah. And so I got up there, but I, I kept my bra and panties on. I see. I think. I think. And I, made, <laughs> I think I made $76. So I was a pro, you know? So great job. I mean, you can also just tell people you performed on the UCB stage. Yes, I can do that. Yeah. 
Now, and you- that sounds like probably one of the more entertaining shows that happened on that stage. Right? Cause I, I saw a lot of them and profitable. <laughs> yeah. You, you made more money than every UCB improviser in one night. <laughs> now, do you have any secrets you want to divulge right now? We've gotten to know each other so intimately here. I've got nothing that, I mean, you've already been so great at talking about, I mean, I honestly can't believe you mentioned my album. That is like the sweetest thing you could have done because I have no nothing to offer as a musician other than my desire for attention. So that was really sweet of you to bring up uh, and everything. So a secret, I, you know, I do have one. I'm bad at like remembering my life in a fun way. Some people are so good at telling stories and it's, it's never really been my strong suit. Um, a secret. I um, Here's something that I'm sort of proud of. I saved somebody from drowning once and, um, off the coast of Santorini in Greece. Well, it's kind of a cool story when I was 24. I think we have time to tell the story. You were 24 once. Yeah, that's amazing. I was 24. That's the part of the story I really love. Uh, Full head of hair. Um, Really, it was a blast to have hair. I, yeah, I was like doing a backpacking thing around Europe because I had never traveled. And so I had quit a job. It was in between jobs. Uh, on purpose. And so I hitchhiked around Europe, you know, the way that people would do, bought a train pass, was in Greece, made friends with people at the campground I was staying at. And we all went to the beach and there was like this cliff jumping thing where you could jump off the cliff into the water and everybody was doing it and then swimming to the shore. And this British woman who I was friends with jumped in front of me and she just, I don't know, she started drowning. She like swallowed a bunch of water and panicked. And I was, I was the next one down on the cliff and I'm a strong swimmer. So I just grabbed her, hauled her to shore. She coughed up the water. Uh, she was married. Her husband was right after me and they uh, bought me drinks for the rest of, for the rest of that trip. It was really, it was really, I felt like a hero. I guess I was a hero briefly. You were a superhero. Uncharacteristically masculine of me. It was, it was, it was kind of, I was like surprised at myself. A superhero, and so we can add to your credits, lifeguard. Yes. So, you know, the resume <laughs> continues. So it has been delightful speaking with you. We're going to go off of the podcast and do a scene in a few minutes. Okay. So um, this has been so exciting for me, and uh, I really hope I can take some classes with you along the oh, line. Thank you, Marga. So thank much you. fun. And I, again, want to thank Landon for being a great engineer. Oh, you, you're welcome. Of course. I mean, <laughs> what are we, I'm not doing anything. So <laughs> <laughs> you just have it. You just have the best voice of us, though. You're upping the quality of the the quality of our, our voice uh, <laughs> fidelity. He does indeed, doesn't he? I felt embarrassed yeah. to speak again after hearing his mellifluous voice. Me too. I feel like a pile of shit. <laughs> That's that's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll say cheers right now to you, Will Hines, and thank you cheers. for everything that you've done and contributed and continue to contribute. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.